Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We come to uh, another horizon, another vista, if you will, in this grand text on the gospel, which we know as the book of Romans. It has, uh, to this point, been fairly thorough in, in uh, presenting to us the truth that God justifies the ungodly. Paul labored in three chapters to establish from every angle necessary, every angle that we need to demonstrate to us, whether by pagan or by religious standards, every person is under sin, or as he says in Romans 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. He established then to us clearly that all of us stand before God unjustified or guilty because of our sin before ending the chapter really with a crescendo of how God made a way to justify the unjust, to justify the ungodly. In most cases, uh, that now has become basic for the church in the 21st century. Most people don't hear that in the same terms that it would land on the ears of a first century reader, particularly a first century Jew. But this would have been shocking to them, particularly because they were taught in the Old Testament that it is an aberration, it is a, uh, an abomination for someone to let the guilty go. Proverbs seventeen fifteen, He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. Not only that, God actually presents Himself as the alternative model to that kind of corruption. He says in Exodus 23, You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in your lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, because I will not acquit the wicked. So God lays Himself out as the standard of why you should never allow someone who is guilty, someone who is wicked, someone who is unjust, to go unpunished, to go acquitted. The issue then for the gospel is that this is exactly what it sounds, at least to some, like Paul is claiming, that he is justifying, that he is acquitting people who are guilty, who are ungodly. And so it appears that Paul might be saying God does precisely what he condemns human judges or commands human judges not to do. But in fact, Paul is saying, as we noted in Romans 3, 25 and 26, Paul is saying that God justifies the wicked precisely in such a way that not only are they justified, but it demonstrates at the same time His justice. His justice, so that in the end, God presents Himself ultimately as the just justifier of the unjust. He's the just justifier of the unjust. And of course, the factor that allows God to be both just in punishing sin and the justifier of those who are ungodly, the factor in that, of course, is the cross of Christ, the fact that God's wrath 
and God's demand for justice can be fully satisfied by Jesus dying in our place so that we can stand fully complete and fully acceptable before Him. Now, when first hearing this and without understanding the cross, the Jews, as I said, would be particularly scandalized by the idea that God would acquit someone who is guilty. They would be scandalized by it. They would be uh, enraged by it. They would accuse Paul of, of not only denigrating God, but undermining the whole foundations of their religion, of their Bible, of their covenant, of everything. But as Paul has presented again and again in the first three chapters, that everything he's telling them comes straight out of the law and the prophets. Everything he's telling them is perfectly consistent with the law and the prophets. He said that in the opening of the book. He says it again as he comes into chapter 3. He quotes Scripture throughout those passages, all, all presenting to them that what he's, what he's preaching and what he's calling them to isn't anything new. In fact, it's perfectly consistent with the message God always wanted them to understand. I read about these people who struggle about how to reconcile the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it always frustrates me because their dilemma uh, inevitably arises because they are putting some emphasis on a peripheral issue, some, some secondary or side issue, and missing what is the central point between both Testaments that everyone who is ever saved for all eternity is always saved by grace through faith. This is the message of the Scripture. So this wasn't something new. This was the same faith God intended for Israel all along. That means then the next step in Paul's argument isn't just to tell them that this message was there. It's to show them. It is to show them. It is to give them some Old Testament example, some Old Testament proof of exactly what he's talking about. And that's exactly what Paul does in Romans 4 with the story of Abraham. He presents the life of Abraham. He presents the story of Abraham in Romans 4 as the prototypical person of faith. The prime Old Testament example of a person who received God's favor, who received God's blessing based simply on the fact that he believed. Now, there are a number of reasons why Paul would present Abraham as the prime example rather than, say, Adam or Eve or Noah or Samuel or Isaiah or any number of other Old Testament uh, persons. First of all, obviously, is simply to prove that this doctrine of faith was not new. And Abraham served that well because Abraham is as old, or actually older, I should say, than the Bible itself. The story of Abraham reaches all the way to the very beginning of the story of the Bible. He appears first in Genesis chapter 11, and beginning in Genesis chapter 12 forward, the story of Abraham literally casts a shadow over the entirety of the rest of the Bible. And discounting the promises that God made to Adam and Eve In the first few chapters of Genesis, Abraham's life is in some ways, in many ways, the seed story of the entire plot of the Bible. More importantly, 
since much of Paul's argument has to do with how we receive righteousness apart from the law or keeping the law, it's significant that the story of Abraham's life comes more than 400 years before the law was ever given to Moses so that he had no opportunity to even earn righteousness by keeping the Mosaic law. His life represents what couldn't possibly have been someone justified by keeping the law at all. And yet he was justified and he was blessed by God in the richest of ways. Secondly, not only was Abraham used by Paul here to prove that this was not a new doctrine, but he was also using Abraham because Abraham was central to the formation of Israel and central to God's covenant with them as his chosen people. Abraham wasn't, in other words, just a passing story. He wasn't uh, some example of some moral goodness, some, some uh, moral lessons. The primary message of Abraham's life has to do with the promise that God made to him and through him to Israel. It has to do, in other words, with the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that God made with him and his descendants. That promise literally defines not only the, the origin of Israel, where they came from as a physical nation, but it defines where they're going in terms of their hope. So that Abraham's life defines both Israel's past and their future. And without Abraham, not only would there have been no physical descendancy for Israel, there would be no spiritual purpose for them as a people. So, to define Abraham's status before God is at the same time to define Israel's status before God. The whole state of their existence, the whole state of their covenant, the whole state of their being rises and falls on the same criteria in which Abraham himself was called. So, if Abraham was called by works, then Israel was called by works. And, on the other hand, if Abraham was called simply by grace, then Israel was called simply by grace. Thirdly, Abraham's life was a prime example because of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And we'll see this more in the coming weeks, but Abraham, one of the things about him that made him such a clear point of of argument or, or such a clear point in this argument is that central to his life was a promise that through him and through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And if Paul wants to, as he does, go on to include Gentiles with this whole paradigm of salvation by grace through faith, if he wants to argue for salvation apart from keeping Jewish laws, Mosaic laws, Jewish ceremonial laws, or whatever it might be, then Abraham points in both directions. He points in the direction of Israel. He points in the direction of the Gentiles. Not only did Abraham live before any of those laws were established, but he also inherited promises of Gentiles to be blessed through him. And then fourthly, Abraham serves as a prime example because the Jewish rabbis held him in the highest esteem. They spoke of him 
in the highest possible terms. Abraham was put forward in Jewish literature as a model of virtue as well as a model of faith. For example, in the uh, Jewish book of Jubilees, which was so prominent among the Dead Sea Scrolls, in Jubilees 23.10, it says, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. This is their view of Abraham. Or the prayer of Manasseh, another apocryphal work from the Second Temple period, says, Therefore, O Lord, who are the God of the just, has not appointed repentance to the unjust, as to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who have not sinned against thee. So they actually had this idea that Abraham was sinless, along with Isaac and Jacob. The wisdom of Ben Sirach, sometimes known as Ecclesiasticus, says this, Abraham was a great father of many people, in glory where there was none like unto him, who kept the law of the Most High and was in covenant with him. He established the covenant in his flesh, and when he was proved, he was found faithful, end quote. So their whole paradigm of how the covenant was established, their whole paradigm of how their, their relationship with God was established was all based not on grace, not on faith, but was based on Abraham's faithfulness, Abraham's obedience, Abraham's perfection, according to the law, which ironically didn't even exist. Jewish tradition actually formulated this idea that Abraham received a special dispensation, a special revelation of the law of God in his lifetime so that he could obey it perfectly. Now, how he did that with no temple, we're not told. And no priesthood, we're not told. But this was the ridiculous stature that they would try to assign to Abraham. This was the popular view as well as the rabbinical view that he was without sin. So in choosing Abraham... Paul is striking a polemical tone. He is in an attacking tone here, whether you realize it or not, because he is undermining Israel in how they identify themselves as a nation, as well as how they identify their whole system of religion, undermining what was celebrated as the central message of the Bible, the central virtue that was to be pursued in terms of faithfulness. And Paul does all this by simply taking them back to some of the key details of the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Now, the argument from Abraham's life really runs through the length of this entire chapter, but I want to draw your attention this morning to just the first eight verses and three critical claims that Paul presents to us about Abraham's life in these few verses, these three critical claims that prove to us in a powerful way that it is God who justifies the ungodly, not not God who justifies the worthy. And you'll see that, first of all, as Paul makes the point in verses 1 and 2 about the exclusion of Abraham's boasting. The exclusion of Abraham's boasting. It would have been a basic assumption for most Jews of that day 
that that Abraham had grounds for boasting and he probably was presented as boasting. And they would assume that posture in themselves. Not only would they have boasted in Abraham's faithfulness, but they would have assumed his, his own ability. They wrote about Abraham's own ability to claim some right, some entitlement to the blessings that he received. They loudly proclaimed Abraham's worthiness. But Paul says here in verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast, but not before God. That last phrase should be understood really as not in the case or this is not the case with God. And the contrast Paul is making is between what was often claimed about Abraham according to the flesh versus what can be claimed about him before God. In other words, we might, what we might say about Abraham according to the flesh and what we cannot say about him before God. We don't want to make the mistake, as some have, of seeing this as some sort of endorsement by Paul of, of what was often said about Abraham according to the flesh. Paul isn't endorsing these common perceptions of, of Abraham's perfect virtue and saying, well, Abraham had plenty of grounds of boasting before other people. He's simply conceding the point that even if you might say that according to the flesh he could boast, you certainly could not say that before God. That's what he's trying to say. The whole idea would be repulsive to Paul because really the whole idea of boasting is so contrary to everything the gospel represents. The whole idea of entitlement, the whole idea of worthiness, the whole idea of any kind of boasting at all is antithetical to the gospel. In fact, when Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he tells us that God intentionally chooses what is foolish, what is weak, what is low, what is despised, so that, he says in 1 Corinthians one twenty nine, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God doesn't want any boasting. He doesn't want boasting. He doesn't want you trying to boast to Him. He doesn't want you trying to boast to other people. He doesn't want any boasting. In fact, uh, uh, Paul goes on to quote even Jeremiah there. As it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So all boasting is excluded unless you're going to boast in the Lord. There is everything antithetical to the gospel for anyone who wants to boast. And so what Paul's doing here, he's not trying to limit boasting, he's trying to exclude it altogether. If you think about things, if you think about the world in fleshly terms, if you think about things according to the flesh, if that's your perspective, if you eliminate God from the equation, then sure, yeah, you might come up with some grounds of boasting, But once you factor in the reality that God is the creator, God is the judge, he's the one who really matters, then all boasting is eliminated. 
The reason God despises boasting, the reason that Paul would abhor it so much is because the whole purpose of the gospel, the essential and ultimate and primary purpose of the gospel is to bring all glory to God alone. As Ephesians 1 says, in love God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He predestine us? Why did He choose us? Why did He save us? He did it for that reason, for the praise of His glorious grace. A few verses later, Paul says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. He says it again a few verses later. The whole working of God in us by the Holy Spirit for regeneration is for the praise of His glory. And so Paul isn't trying to carve out some some corner, some ground by which you could boast to other people. What he's doing is he's presenting the picture as we ought to see it. The picture before God. And when he says, when you think about it, when you see it through God's eyes, there's no grounds of boasting. No one has reason to boast. And that's really the only grounds that matter. So that the one who boasts, as Jeremiah says, let him boast in the Lord. Paul would never admit any grounds for boasting because it would take away, even in the smallest way, from the glory that belongs completely and absolutely to God. We, we then who receive God's grace, we are the weak, we are the foolish, we are the lowly, we are the despised, whom God chooses in spite of our weakness and foolishness and despicable nature. In fact, Paul presents even Abraham as an example down in verse 5. He says, of how God justifies the ungodly. So far from trying to establish some basis of boasting, he's presenting Abraham ultimately as one of these ungodly. You'll highlight some of this as we move through the chapter, but Abraham's faith tried and tested again and again. And in many cases, we would say, didn't pass the test. Paul may be assuming some familiarity with this story of Abraham, which some of you may not have, but if you were to go and simply read just Abraham's life from Genesis 12 through 22, just read those 11 chapters, and it would become obvious to the most simple student of the Bible that Abraham did not often pass the test with flying colors. First of all, God called Abraham to leave his home And he called him, we read in Genesis 12, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And what do we read right there in the context of Genesis 11 and 12? That Abraham did not leave his kindred and he did not leave his father. In fact, he carried his father Terah, who was an idolater, with him. And along the way, because of that, he got bogged down in the city of Haran. He left his hometown, Ur of the Chaldees, and journeyed to Haran and stopped there for 15 years. 
15 years abiding in disobedience to God. Until finally his father died, Terah died, and we read that he moved on from Haran to the land of Canaan, but even then he was 75 years old, well beyond childbearing age, of course. And even when he left Haran, he still disobeyed God by carrying along with him his nephew Lot to the land of Canaan. Then when Abram reached Canaan, he was faced with a period of famine, and rather than trusting in the Lord, he fled to Egypt, where out of fear of his life, because he put himself in a compromising situation, he lied and falsely claimed that his wife was his sister, Sarah was his sister, so that Pharaoh wouldn't kill him, and tempted Pharaoh to take Sarah as his, one of his wives, potentially putting at threat the whole promise of the covenant to bring a descendant through Abraham. And not only that, bringing plagues upon Pharaoh and disaster upon Egypt until finally he was forced to confess his sins and, and to come clean about his relationship with his wife. As he makes his way back to Canaan, and even though God had repeatedly by that time, repeatedly given promises to Abraham of a physical descendant, when Sarah herself got beyond childbearing age and still had not borne any children, Abram doubted God's plan and took matters into his own hands. He committed adultery with Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, in hope of having a male heir by her and As is always true with disobedience, it backfired. It brought misery and pain to innocent people even. In fact, Abraham's disobedience brought future misery to all of his descendants because God cursed his disobedience by ordaining continuous conflict between the descendants of Ishmael, that is all the Arab nations, and Israel. It's true even today. The conflict goes on even today. I mean, how would you like having a sin whose consequences lasted for 4,000 years? Abraham was by no means perfect. And yet, even in the imperfection of his faith, when Abraham was rebuked by God, what he did was continually come back to the Lord. He always came back And through his failures and through his weaknesses, his faith was strengthened. To the point where, near the end of his life, when the greatest test came of all, that is when God had given him this miraculous child at the age of 99, and once the child had grown just a few years, God called Abraham to sacrifice him, to kill him. The one that he had struggled so long to even hope would come about. And yet when God commanded him to sacrifice Isaac, the only human means now through which this promise could ultimately be fulfilled, Abraham responded with unquestioned obedience. His faith grew. As every true believer grows in his faith, his faith grew. In fact, the writer of Hebrews addresses that event From Genesis 22, he says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and when he had received the promise, was in in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So now the man who who couldn't even believe that God would spare his life in Egypt now has reached the point where he believes that God could even raise his own son from the dead. His faith, thankfully, had grown. But he was no model of perfection. And he had absolutely no uh, uh, grounds, I should say, for boasting. He was the supreme example of the fact that God justifies even the ungodly person. That God justifies even the wicked person. God receives them. And it was all based not on his actions, but as Paul points out, on his faith, which is the second critical claim that Paul makes about Abram's life here. In verses 3 through 5, the testimony of Abraham's belief. Paul validates his point in verses 1 and 2 by Scripture in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul presents the Scripture here. He presents the Scripture as speaking, interestingly, which really is God speaking, but when you read New Testament authors in their mind, anytime the Scripture speaks, God speaks, they're one and the same for for New Testament Christians. So the Scripture says, and God says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This, in other words, this is where his righteousness comes from. It doesn't come from his perfection. It doesn't come from his absolute obedience. It doesn't come from his perfect and spotless faithfulness. It comes from this. It was counted. It was credited. It was imputed to him by God through believing. God accepted Abraham because he believed, says the Scripture. And the implication of that is that it is only because he believed. In fact, this verse comes very early in the account of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. Long before his celebrated sacrifice of Isaac, long before many of the actions that Israel would celebrate in his life, long before any of those things even took place, God makes this declaration about Abraham. Now, this belief, like all true belief, led eventually to those visible demonstrations of his trust in God. But it wasn't those demonstrations, and it wasn't those actions, and it wasn't that follow-through, and it wasn't all that uh, obedience or whatever it might be. It wasn't those actions that caused God to consider Abraham righteous. It was because he believed. Genesis 15 says that. And in the context of Genesis 15, the primary emphasis is the fact that he simply believed that God would grant him an heir, a child. Of course, through that child would come the promises of descendants and a nation as many as the stars in the heaven and a land and the exaltation of Abraham's name. 
But what Abraham was challenged to believe is that he, even though he was 75 years old at that point, that he would have a child. God made that promise and Abraham believed it. And we read the account in Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. But behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The emphasis of the whole section is not on Abram's actions, not on his behavior, not on his obedience, not on his perfection. Not on anything that he do. The, the, the whole emphasis of the way that God viewed him and the way God treated him and the way God blessed him was all through his faith. The simplicity of his faith. He believed what God said. Now up to that point, God had not said a lot. There was no scripture. There was no Old Testament, there was no law, there was no Torah. Moses wouldn't come around for more than 400 years and write all that stuff down. There was no biblical book for him to believe, but what he had heard from God, he believed. And there would be other things that God would reveal to Abraham in the future, and each time God revealed something new, Abraham embraced it, Abraham believed it, whether it was circumcision, whether it was dealing with Sodom, whether it was the sacrifice of Isaac. Because that is the nature of saving faith. It simply believes God. As time passed, God revealed more and more. He eventually revealed the law of Moses. He eventually revealed His covenant to David. He eventually revealed the new covenant. He eventually revealed the New Testament and His greatest revelation, Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. But the one who believes God is still in the same stance. He still receives the same benefit when he simply believes everything that God has said. Although the content of our faith today might be fuller and richer and more contoured, we might say, the character of our faith is exactly the same as Abraham's. We are simply those who believe God, whatever He says. Sometimes people ask me, what does someone have to believe in order to be saved? What do they have to believe? And the simple answer to that, they just have to believe God. They have to believe God, whatever He says, as much as they can understand of what He says. It doesn't matter how simplistic their mind is. It doesn't matter if they have some sort of handicap. It doesn't matter really even what age they are. It doesn't matter any of those things. The same simple nature of faith has to be present. They believe God. 
Because even as we grow in our faith, our understanding of God's Word may deepen and widen, but our nature of our faith doesn't change. And God, at the moment of faith, recognizes that. And no matter how much you know or how little you know, He credits righteousness to your account because of it. That's the nature of saving faith. Now, someone can have a profession of faith. They can say they believe, but they really have been presented with some distorted picture of God, some distorted picture of His Word or His Gospel. And so what they have, no matter how bold they are in their proclamation, what they have is not true saving faith because they've never really been challenged to believe God. But when we hear the Word of God, when we're challenged by the truth, then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You hear the Word of God, you believe it, and God credits you with a righteousness not your own. Now Paul expounds on this passage from Genesis by an illustration in verses 4 and 5. We might call it the illustration of the employer. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's basically laying out for us what is simple in our minds. There's two ways to receive money. Either as wages or as a gift. You either can earn something or you can be given something. And the, t- the two are really exclusive of one another. You, you are either in one camp or the other. It would be offensive really to you if after you put in a full week's work, your employer came up to you and said, you know... I thought I would be generous to you and give you something as a gift to show you how much I appreciate you, and then he hands you your paycheck. That would be offensive to you. You would want him to, I should say, you would not want him to be grandstanding and taking credit for something you legitimately earned, right? As if that's something that came from him. But if you didn't work, And if you had no contract or agreement guaranteeing you payment under those circumstances, and he still came up to you and paid you, you'd be genuinely appreciative. You'd understand it to be a gift. Paul uses that little illustration to highlight that Abraham was credited with this righteousness without any works. Scripture doesn't point to Abraham's work. As any reason why God did this? In fact, Paul says in verse 5, this Abraham is an example that proves that God justifies the ungodly. All of this is presented essentially in, in financial or economic terms. Paul uses the Greek word uh, uh, logizotai from logizomai, which is basically a financial term. He uses the same root word, by the way, in his letter to Philemon regarding Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. And Paul's sending him back to Philemon, and he says to them in verse 18 of that little book, he says, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Same root word. Charge it to my account. It's an economic word. 
credit it against me. I'll make it good, he says. And so Paul makes it clear that not only by that illustration, by the contrast between wages and a gift, but also by the terminology that this righteousness comes to us by way of declaration, by way of what we might say is imputation. Theologians sometimes say this is forensic. We know that word, forensic. It has to do with the legal realm, things which are used in law courts. And so they talk about forensic righteousness or forensic justification, really. And what they're saying is, is that God makes a legal declaration. He changes our legal status. As quickly as you could go from being a non-citizen to a citizen simply by a declaration has nothing to do with whether or not you were born or raised in this country. Some official makes a declaration over you and you are made an American citizen by some some, uh, fiat declaration. Same thing takes place here. In an instantaneous moment, we go from being those who are spiritually bankrupt, who have spiritually no resources to commend ourselves, to those who have unlimited spiritual resources, unlimited, endless, all by God's divine and instantaneous accounting. He imputes it all to us. Now, this, we might add, is very different from the Roman Catholic view of how we're made righteous. This was the the, 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 uh, point of departure between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. The Roman Catholic Catechism, beginning in paragraph uh, uh, 1989, excuse me, paragraph 1989 says, quote, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and the renewal of the inner man. And it goes on, and by it God makes us inwardly just by the power of His mercy. End quote. In other words, according to the Roman Catholic doctrine, this is not a crediting of righteousness against your account. This is an infusing of righteousness into you. God actually puts righteousness in you and then turns around and recognizes that righteousness that you now have internally. And the difference actually turns Paul's statement on its head. Because now, instead of God being the one who justifies the ungodly... Now he's the one who creates the godly and then justifies them. He's actually justifying the godly because he's the one who made them godly to begin with. Roman Catholicism has now created a gospel, in other words, where God justifies only the just. Where he justifies only those who he has infused with the right kind of righteousness. This isn't what Paul's saying at all. Paul is saying that God declared the unrighteous Abraham before he ever did what 
anything that would have made him worthy before he ever did anything that would would have made him righteous before he ever uh, carried out any kind of act that would have uh, given him merit or reason to boast before God. What God did was declare the unrighteous Abraham to be righteous before he ever did good or bad. Before he ever did good, I should say. This is forensic justification. According to Paul's illustration, Abraham did not earn it. He didn't work for it at all. But he received it simply as a gift. Now this is all confirmed in the third critical claim that Paul makes about Abraham's life here in verses 6 through 8. And that is the confirmation of Abraham's blessing. The confirmation of Abraham's blessing. This, he says, just as David also speaks. In other words, David uses the same kind of language to describe his experience and his relationship with God. And specifically, what he means is that that David uses this language of accounting. He uses this, this, this language of crediting. Logizomai, the same word in the Greek Old Testament. God counting something either for us or not counting something against us, as he goes on to say here, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom the Lord counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David's point is, is actually the opposite. Not that God counts us as righteous, but that he does not count our unrighteousness against us. In other words, there is a double counting in justification. There's a, there's a positive side and a negative side, or we could flip it around and say negative and a positive. That in justification... What God does is, first of all, He forgives. He doesn't count your trespasses against you. All of the sins that you commit or will ever commit are completely removed and cannot be used against you. And then on the flip side, because you still at that point don't have the worthiness to stand before Him, He credits you with a righteousness not your own, but with one which comes from Him. The righteousness of Christ by faith, as Paul says in Philippians 3. This double counting in justification really is proof of the forensic nature. It is proof by way of contrast that all of this is taking place not experientially, not by some sort of infusion, but by a declaration. Because the idea of infusing doesn't work with negative counting. There's no way to infuse somebody with something so that they didn't do it. The only way you can do that is simply to remove it by declaration from their account. And yet the scripture uses these two side by side, positive and negative, in parallel fashion multiple times. It's here, Paul uses it in verse 6 and comes down in verse 8 and says he credits us with righteousness and then he doesn't credit our sin against us. You can go over to 1 Corinthians 
uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you hear the same kind of language in verse 21. For God made him who, uh, to be sin who had no sin or knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there you have, in parallel fashion, the same sort of imputation going on. God made him, God declared him, God considered him to be sin, while at the same time he considers us to be righteous through him. This is the language of imputation. This is the language of forensic declaration. Back over in Romans chapter 5 then, David confirms what is said of Abraham. That this blessing from God comes in spite of our sin. It comes in spite of our sin. That doesn't work, that doesn't work with the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view has to have you in receiving this internal righteousness and then working it out through a series of deeds and actions and confessions and and penance and all those things. But David says, no, it comes. It comes in spite of your sin. Paul says in verse 6, David too was not what was counted as righteous. And he says down in verse 8, because he was not counted as guilty either, this blessing came to him. This was the source. It was the source of Abraham's blessing. This was the source of David's blessing. In fact, it was the source of, of Abraham's covenant. And it was the source of David's covenant. It wasn't because of what they did. It wasn't because of their actions and nothing that they would do would ever undo any of those things. And so not only was it the source of Abraham's blessings, it was the source of all Israel's hope. All of Israel's hope either stands or falls on this doctrine. If what Paul says is true. At the same time, it was a source of blessing. Not only, we would say, covenantally. Not only was it the source of these covenants and the ground and foundation of these covenants, but spiritually it was a blessing. It was a blessing in the sense that the one who believes God has their sins wiped away. The one who believes God receives from God a favorable verdict on the day of judgment, even if they are themselves ungodly. The one who believes everything that God says receives this eternal spiritual blessing. So that what David says is true, blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. You're blessed because you inherit eternal life. You're blessed because although you deserve to be rejected by God, although you deserve to be cast out, you're blessed 
Because you receive what you don't deserve, what you could never deserve, which is fellowship with God in eternal bliss with Him in heaven. And even personally, even personally, what David says is true. We might even say emotionally. The person who's blessed is, the person who's forgiven is blessed. The person who's forgiven is secured. The person who's forgiven is stabilized. They no longer are tossed here and there by what people may think of them or how people may treat them or whatever it might be. They're no longer railed uh, against by what people count against you. And you're no longer bound to seek for ways for people to somehow count something for you. In other words, you are freed from the bondage to pleasing people, from receiving the praise of men. You're freed from the bondage of always performing, of always being under someone's scorn. You're freed from the bondage of all the insults, of all of the demeaning talk. You're freed from the bondage of all the sense of failure, of all the ideas of not living up. You're freed from all that. Because what you receive from God is absolute, absolute forgiveness and absolute pardon, absolute adoption. Paul will say this over in Romans chapter 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You may not have peace with other people. You may not have peace in your home. You may not have peace with your parents. You may not have peace with your spouse. You may not have peace at work. You may, you may live all the time just absolutely torn up because of the rejection, because of the ridicule, because of how people count so many things against you. The way you act, the way you look, where you come from, whatever those things are. But the good news of the gospel is that you can be blessed because God doesn't count any of it against you. All He counts is in your favor through Christ. That's the good news of the gospel right there. That is the blessing of the gospel right there. The fact that when you believe God, when you place your faith in Him, He secures you to Himself by His love. And nothing will ever separate you from that. How blessed is the man, how blessed is the woman whose sins are forgiven. To whom the Lord doesn't count your sin. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, what glorious thoughts these are. What glorious words that you justify the ungodly. Because we stand here before you today guilty. All having sinned and fall short of your glory. Even this week, Lord. Even so recent in our thoughts and minds with shame. We can think of 
all that we've done, which categorize us with the rejected, with the weak and the foolish. But what a glorious thought to hear that these are the very ones you choose. That you call those who are despised, you call those who are lowly, you call those who are nothing so that you can make us something in Christ. You can grant us all the riches that He has to give. And Lord, it is our place then to give all glory to Him. Lord, we bow before You today, thanking You for this gift, gladly receiving it in our hearts, and gladly offering up ourselves believing every word you say and giving every ounce of our being to your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.